Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. You should have received a handout in your bulletin this morning. Mark chapter 1. We've been studying through the book of Mark and seeing how Jesus has authority over all things. And today we're going to see that Jesus has authority over sickness and demons. Rob Howell is a missionary in Tanzania, East Africa. On Wednesday, October 14, 2009, he wrote, Obnoxious, shameful. Those two words describe the sounds emanating from a tent made from tree limbs and an old blue UN tarp some 200 meters from our house. A few gospel shysters are hawking salvation at 100 decibels. No kidding. With a generator, an amplifier, and a few speakers cranked all the way up, they're blowing our city of Swaya out with a different gospel. Picture walking into a club with booming music and DJs shouting in rhythm over all the noise. That's what it sounds like from the inside of our house. I think today is the third day. It's beyond sad. Yesterday, I walked down the street to check them out. There were about 50 to 100 people in and around the tent. Three or four people were standing in front, ranting and raving about making someone's legs the same length. Next came someone who couldn't speak. The preachers kept shoving the microphone in her mouth, but she never uttered a word. While all this was going on, kids were playing and fighting with each other. Adults were shooting the breeze as if nothing out of the ordinary were happening. For these preachers, salvation was all about physical healing, financial gain, and binding Satan. Not one shred of Scripture was read or quoted from all the hours that I was forced their trash. The words sin and forgiveness never crossed their lips, not even once. The one time I heard Christ's death and resurrection mentioned was in connection with freedom from physical pain. Nothing about dying in our place for our sin. Neither was anything mentioned about new life in Christ. Think about that. Claiming to be an evangelist, preaching for hours every, every day, and not once mentioning any of these things. The false teachers will move on, leaving a train wreck of confused people in their wake. This gospel, he says, is killing Africa. He updated uh, this statement on Thursday morning at 6.30 a.m. It was another long, restless night. By 9 p.m. last night, they had cranked back up the generator and went all night long. Every time I woke up, I couldn't understand a word they were saying. They were speaking gibberish the whole night. From 5 this morning, I've been listening from my home office. The only intelligible words I heard interspersed throughout the gibberish were, in Jesus' name, fire, burn, and Satan. Still no sign of the Gospel. There are people all over this world that are looking for that kind of Jesus. They're looking for a Jesus who will take care of all of their problems. Whether it be their physical problems or their financial problems, their interpersonal relational problems. But what they don't recognize is that the power to heal does not come from empty promises. The power comes from God. And Jesus is in, unlike any of these false teachers that we hear about in Tanzania. 
because everyone whom He intends to heal is healed. And the purpose of His healing is not so that He can gain more money or so that His popularity can rise more and more. It is so that His authority will be supported or vindicated, justified. So that He can show them that He is the very Son of God. And this week we'll see how Jesus authenticates His authority. And that's why I say that the theme of this passage is that Jesus has authority over sickness and demons because He is the Son of God. Now, it was a Sabbath day in Capernaum, and as was the Jewish custom, the main meal that they ate during that day was after they had already gone to the synagogue. And, in fact, the normal pattern was not to eat at all on the Sabbath until after they had gone to the synagogue. And Jesus and at least four of His disciples were at the synagogue all day since Simon and Andrew lived nearby. They invited Jesus to dinner after they had gone and, uh, and, and had worshipped God that day. And so that is where we find ourselves in verse 29 of Mark chapter 1. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he, Jesus, healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. How was it that Jesus was able to heal these people with all these various sicknesses and how was He able to remove these demons from these people? Well, it is because that Jesus has authority over them. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over demons because He is the Son of God. Jesus shows His authority, first of all, over sickness. And we see that in, in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in verses 29-31. through 31. Now, what we know about Peter, we learned from this passage that he has a brother named Andrew. We knew that earlier because he and his brother Andrew came and followed Christ. And they had originally grown up in Bethsaida, according to John chapter 1, verse 44. But now we find that their home is in the city of Capernaum. After having agreed to come and follow Jesus, they made their home there. And they apparently moved there because that was where Jesus had set up His headquarters. Turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 1 you'll see that this is now Jesus, the place that Jesus now calls home. When He had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that He was at home. The people recognized that this was now His home. Now, we, we all know from the history of Jesus Christ that He was not born or raised in the city of Capernaum. But now this is where He's call, calling His home. He was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, and now he's moved to Capernaum, apparently because those people in those cities had rejected him. And because his own would not receive him, he went out to the rest of the, uh, of the people there up in the, the area of Galilee. Galilee was the region that they, they were living in. So we find out about Peter that he has a brother and that he lives in the area. We also find out in verse 30 
about Peter that, that he is married. Verse 30 says, Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Now I call him Peter because Peter is the same person as Simon. Turn to John chapter 1 and I'll show you the different names of this man named Simon. We think of him as Peter because that is what Jesus often calls him throughout his life and what he's referred to excuse me, in, in the Acts and the Epistles. In fact, we have a book that's written by him, two books written by Peter, um, <clears throat> towards the end of our Bible. John chapter 1, verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So there we have all three of Peter's name all in one verse. So Simon, if you if you find out uh, that, that the Scriptures are talking about a person by the name of Simon, uh, specifically when it's talking about one of Jesus' disciples, that is referring to Peter or Cephas. Now, another thing that we find out or that we have support for is that Simon was, or Peter, was indeed married. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says, Do I not have the right to be married? Just like Cephas is married, 1 Corinthians 9.5. So, Paul also recognized that Peter was married. And this is something that we don't often think about, that one of the disciples were married, but in fact, Peter was. And apparently, his mother-in-law also lived with him, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 30, because she was lying sick there. Now, she very well could have been visiting both Peter and his wife, but it's probably that her husband had died and she needed someone to take care of her as a widow. And so it would be natural for her to go to her daughter or son's house, in this case her daughter's house, and live with them. So those are the things that we find out about Peter. Now we get to the, the setting of the story and that is that we find this woman sick. Verses 30 and 31, we see that she's sick. She was lying in bed with a fever. Now, I'm sure each of us have had a fever at one time or another in our lives. And so you know that fevers cause you to be weak. It, it keeps you from being able to do the things that you would normally do. And all that you can, can muster up enough energy to do is to simply just lay there and, uh, and barely even put food to your mouth because you feel so weak. And apparently her her fever did the same thing because she was lying sick and she was unable to help them. With this many guests in the house, we would expect that she would be helping. In fact, after she is healed, at the end of verse 31, after the fever left her, she waited on them. But the fever had, had kept her down up until that point. And it was potentially life-threatening because when we read from Luke chapter 4, verse 38, Luke also recounts the same story and Luke, being a doctor, recognizes that it is a high fever. So this could, could very well have been life-threatening. And when Jesus comes, he finds out about it. It's not simply, hey, Jesus, my mother-in-law has this fever that she can't shake. You know, she, she can't get over this thing. What can you do about it? You got any medication or anything you can do for her? No, it was, she's lying sick and potentially at the point of death. What can you do for her? Well, we see Jesus' authority over sickness in verse 31. <clears throat> and He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. 
Now notice what Jesus does not do. Okay? Notice his discovery phase. He doesn't ask a hundred questions. You've all been to the doctors and some of you have probably been to the emergency room. And you know they ask you hundreds of questions. Seemingly endless amount of questions. They have to ask everything about your history. When this started. What other uh, medications you're taking. What other illnesses you have. And go, they go on and on and on. They have to discover more and more about you. But what does Jesus do? Does He go through all that questioning when He finds out about Peter's mother-in-law? No. Because He is God. And He knows exactly what her problem is. And He goes and meets the need. He knows the problem. He knows the severity of the problem. And He knows the solution to the problem. Jesus' method was very different also from the way that our doctors treat us. Because He is God, He is able to simply use His voice. Previously, Jesus had used words alone. When He called the disciples in verses 17 and 20, He simply used His voice. He said, Come and follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. When He removed the evil spirit in verse 25, He said, Be quiet and come out of Him. He simply used His voice. Here, He uses a combination of both His voice and the touch of His hand. It says that He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the result is that, that she was healed. That the fever left her, verse 31, and she immediately began to wait on them. The, the result is much different from the way that the doctors treat us today. It was both immediate and permanent. It was that she did not have to wait a certain period of time in, in order for this, this work that Jesus did on her to take place. It was immediate. It was not something that would come back, oh, well, it's just temporary. It's something that Jesus used to cover up her problem. No, it was permanent. The fever was gone. It left her. It gave her her full strength back. Now, Jesus has authority over Peter's mother-in-law's sickness, but He also has authority over all kinds of sickness. Because in verse 32, Jesus heals all sorts of other people. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began to bring Him all who were ill and who were demon-possessed. In verse 34, And He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. <clears throat> now this all happened on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday for these people still under the Old Testament law until after Jesus had broken uh, through the bonds of that law when He died and, and raised from the dead. But this happened on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And in verse 21 of chapter 1, we see that they were in the, Sab they were in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, immediately after this, they go to Simon's house and what we find is that these people do not follow them right away. They wait until it's dark. And the reason that they waited was because they had Sabbath restrictions. There was only a certain amount of distance that they could travel on the Sabbath day without breaking the law. They could only travel about two-thirds of a mile. And so they had to wait till darkness because their Sabbath day began on Friday evening at dusk and it went until Saturday evening at dusk. And that's why we read, in verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set. You see, now the Sabbath restrictions have been removed. And now they're able to travel a great amount of distance to come and to see Jesus. And by now the word was spreading rapidly. 
And they all came with their needs and wanted to see Jesus meet their needs. So we see that Jesus has authority over sickness, and that is because He is the Son of God. We also see that Jesus has authority over demons in verse 32 and 34 because it says that when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to Him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Verse 34, And He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. We saw this in verses 25 and 26 when Jesus expelled the unclean spirit from the man who was at the synagogue. And I want you to notice that I I spoke a little bit about this last week, but I want to make it clear that there is a distinct difference between those who are sick and those who are demon-possessed. Now, last week I did say that there are uh, several things that a demon-possessed person would have. A demon-possessed person would always have some spiritual, supernatural spiritual knowledge. They would understand things. Remember what the demon in, in chapter 1 and verse 24 says. He says to Jesus, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knew all these things about Jesus without anybody having told him. So a person who is demon-possessed will have supernatural spiritual power or knowledge, I should say. They will also have a distinct personality. There will... There's usually when you see a person who is demon-possessed that he will be acting differently than that person normally would have acted. And then the third thing I said was that all demon-possessed people will will have some sort of physical malady, whether that be blindness or muteness or whatever. They will have some sort of physical problem, but I do want you to—I I do want to be clear that there is a clear distinction between um, physical problems and um, and demon possession, because the scriptures do not teach that everyone that has a physical problem. Okay, so if you're blind or mute or whatever problem you have, that doesn't mean that you're demon possessed. And that's why I put that little chart on the the page for you. Okay, this is going to require you to do a little bit of thinking. We'll take that first one in the middle column there. It says, all men are humans. Is that true? Okay, maybe your wives don't uh, will answer differently, but all men are humans. And then we could say the second statement, we could say that Martha is a human, but it would not be right. It does not necessarily follow that Martha is a man. And why is that? It's because the last line there, the last row, it says, not all humans are men. There are other humans that are women. So do you follow that line of reasoning? Okay, all humans are all men are humans. Martha is a human, but Martha does not have to be a man just because she is a human. The same thing is true when it comes to demon possession and physical problems, a physical malady. And this line of reasoning follows exactly the same. All demon possessed people, as I said last week and this week, have a physical malady. John Doe, or you could put any name in there, John Doe has a physical malady. But it does not follow that all people with physical malady are demon-possessed. That doesn't follow. And that's because not all people with physical problems are demon-possessed. There are people who who have physical problems and and are not. And so I wanted to make that point clear because I don't think I made that 
very clear last week, so I apologize for restating it if you already got that, but I did want to make that clear. So, we come to the healing of this demon-possessed man, or all these demon-possessed people. This shows that God has, or that God has authority through Jesus Christ, and that all this power that Jesus has is very active within this spiritual realm. It's not that Jesus just has power over the physical realm, that He can heal sickness. It is also that He has power in the spiritual realm, that He can solve all of our spiritual problems as well. So now we come to verses 33 and 34, and we see the popularity of Jesus rising. Jesus is the Son of God, but we find at the end of verse 34 that He keeps the fact that He is Messiah as a secret. Verse 33 shows that his popularity is rising. And the whole city had gathered at the door. The popularity of Jesus rose to the point where if you look at down at verse 45, that it, it really impeded his ability to move and to travel. Verse 45 says, But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to Him from everywhere. So, at this point in Jesus' life, His popularity was rising, but it would become even greater because of all the great things that He had done and because of all of the things that people wanted Him to take care of in their life. And Mark sees His popularity rising so much to the point, verse 33, that he, it seems as if the whole town is gathered at the door of his house. At the door of Peter's house. I mean, and who can blame them? If we had somebody who was heard to have healed all these people and all these problems of problems that they've had their entire lives, would we not go to them as well? And so all the people start um, following after him. And Jesus had been performing some unprecedented miracles. Last week I said that the, the miracle of getting rid of the demon, removing a demon from someone, had never been done in human history. Saul had an evil spirit, but it was, remo- it was not removed by the word of someone's mouth. So Jesus had done something that had never been done before. And so they were bringing to Him all of these people and they wanted to participate in it. They wanted to bring their sick or demon-possessed family members to Jesus so that He could take care of their problem as well or at least be able to witness Him do it to other people if they couldn't have it done to themselves. But what is interesting is that in verse 34 we find that Jesus shields Himself or shields the people from knowing that He is the Messiah. He shields Himself or shields the, the crowd from knowing that He is the Messiah. Verse 34, And He healed many who are ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. Now, if they knew who He was, I mean, they even proclaimed it. Jesus of Nazareth, You are the Holy One of God. Why would Jesus not allow these demons to speak? Why would Jesus keep the demons from proclaiming that He is the Messiah? I think there's a couple reasons. But before we, we get them, um, let me have you turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 41. Because not only is their, their knowledge of Jesus basically that they know His name, they know that He is sinless, 
But the amazing thing is, is they know He is God. That He is, that he is God in human form. Luke chapter 4. In verse 41, demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak. Notice, because they knew him to be the Christ. Now, Christ is not the last name for Jesus. We, we always think of Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. Christ is actually. Another word for the Messiah. It would be the word that they understood in the Old Testament as the promised one, the anointed one. So when we hear the word Christ, it's actually Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And so this is what the demons knew about Him. They knew Him to be the Messiah, the Christ. It wasn't just that they just they knew His name. Turn back to Mark chapter 1. It wasn't just that they knew that He was sinless. They knew that He was the Messiah. And so why would Jesus keep them from speaking? Mark chapter 3, verse 11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they would fall down before Him and say, You are the Son of God. But He earnestly warned them not to tell anybody who He was. But why not allow them to continue? Go ahead, tell them who I am. I want everybody to know I'm the Messiah. They knew truths about Christ, but they rejected Him as the source of truth. They rejected Him as their Savior. Obviously, demons can't be saved, but they rejected Him as who He said He was ultimately. They knew some facts about Him, but they didn't ultimately respond in trust to Him. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that the demons know God and they shudder. They're emotionally changed because of their knowledge of Him. But they don't respond in saving faith to God. And that is the difference. They don't respond with trust. Their belief does not lead to repentance and consequently, it is an unregenerate belief, meaning that it does not save. The first reason that Jesus does not allow them to proclaim that He is the Messiah is because demons are sinful. Demons are sinful. God did not allow sinful men to testify authoritatively about Jesus Christ. So Jesus was protecting the truth. He didn't want it to come from an unclean source. He wanted to come he wanted the truth about his messiahship to come from something that was clean, something that was pure. And so he did not allow the demons to speak about him. And that's why he says in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1, "Be quiet, come out of him." And why he commands the people who who um, were who demon-possessed, that they'd not tell anybody who He is. But it wasn't only because the demons are sinful, but also because of the timing. Because what you'll find is later on in the book of Mark that Jesus does allow people to tell who He is. Jesus does tell people that He is the Messiah. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate and some of the other governors of that day, they said, Are you the King of the Jews? Are you who they say you are? And he says, It is as you say. That is, I am the Messiah. Remember when he was speaking to the the Pharisees in the temple court. And they were talking about Abraham and, and all their history, their Old Testament history. 
And they were the Pharisees were trying to say that they were so great because of their father Abraham. And Jesus says, well, well, I know all about Abraham because I was there before he was even born. And he said, wait a second, how could you be there when Abraham's been long dead, several hundred years now? And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. That is, I am God. I am the Holy One. I have always existed. And so I can say that I have been there even before Abraham. The timing was not right at this time in the book of Mark. What you'll find out later is that as the disciples find out more and more about Jesus Christ and as He's able to spend more time teaching them, that they recognize, once they recognize that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, you'll find in chapter 8, Peter says, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Peter, it's not flesh and blood that revealed this to you. That is not something from humans. It was God Himself that revealed it to you. This came only by the Spirit. And so as the disciples gain this understanding, then Jesus allows Himself to be seen as the Messiah. The other problem is is that if people find out that He's the Messiah this early in His ministry, don't you think the religious leaders would come after Him even sooner? They would want to kill Him because in their eyes, that's blasphemy to say that you're God. How can you say that? They were looking for something else. They were looking for someone else. They were looking for a king who would set up his throne on the earth and allow Israel to reign over all the rest of the nations. And Jesus wasn't that way at all, was He? He came to do something much greater. So, by nature, we are looking for this magic Jesus. The Jesus who gives us things. Does Jesus have authority to power the power and uh, the power to heal any type of sickness today. Does He have the authority to do that? Certainly He does. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whatever your sickness is, Jesus has the power to heal you. Then why doesn't He? Why doesn't He take this body and fix it? Why doesn't He remove all my problems so that I don't have to deal with them anymore? Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus came to, to heal a greater problem than your physical affirmity. He came to heal your ultimate problem, which is your sin. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. In fact, if Jesus' primary reason for coming to the earth was to heal all these different people, then that's what He, what he would have done. He would not have left the earth until every disease was taken care of, until every Demon was removed from a person. But that's not what He came to do at all. In fact, He says, I came to give you life and, to, and so that you will have it more abundantly. That is everlasting life. This life is fleeting. The diseases and the problems that we have in this body right now will be done away with at some point. Jesus didn't come to heal your physical problem, although He, he does have the power to do so. If he did that, in every, if every person that came to Christ was healed of their physical problems, 
you would find people with completely healthy uh, lifestyles. They would not have any problems anymore. But have you ever found a person that came to Christ and had all their problems taken away physically? If you ever do, let me know. That doesn't happen. Because that is not what Jesus came to do. But what you do see when someone comes to Christ is what? That their greatest problem is taken care of. The sin that we carried as a load on our backs has been put on Jesus Christ at the cross. Now no longer do we have to bear it anymore. There may still be physical problems, but if we had no problems, we would be less likely to turn to God in times of affliction, wouldn't we? Sometimes when we are at our lowest point in life, that is when we turn to God the most, isn't it? And if God removed all of your problems after you came to Him, then perhaps you wouldn't turn to Him anymore because you've already gotten what you wanted. You would be exactly like the Tanzanians over there in East Africa who go to this tent and try to get all their problems removed. They don't care about their sin. In fact, the people who are preaching about it don't care about their sin. All they care about is getting their physical problems healed. And so what you'll find is those type of people will serve God only as long as He gives them gifts. That's why I call Him the magic Jesus that people are looking for. It is this Jesus that gives me things. But God is not someone to be used. God is not someone to, to, to be taken advantage of. God is someone to be worshipped. And Jesus, because of both His teaching and the miracles that He performed, has the power, the authority as the Son of God over all things whether it be your sickness, whether it be over any sort of demon possession, Jesus has the authority because He is the Son of God. We can't wait to follow God until He's given us everything that we want. You know what, God? We'll, we'll be like Je- uh, Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. You've seen that in your reading just recently, a few weeks ago. Remember what he vowed to God. He said, you know what? As long as you provide me food and safety and all these great things, a great family, then I will follow you. Jacob wasn't willing to serve God at any cost. He wasn't willing to take up his cross at that point and follow Him. And it wasn't until later in his life that he recognized that he must serve God at all costs. And that is what faith is. It is believing that what God has said is true and that even though we don't see Him, we still believe. Paul says, if we saw Him, it wouldn't be faith. Because now we would, He would be among us. It, it, would be, it would just be sight. And one day it will be like that. We have great hope, don't we? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, when we look at a passage like this, we ought to respond with great love and devotion to Him that He has come to heal our greatest problem, our sin. And that we could do nothing more than to give ourselves to Him. That we could offer our bodies, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as a living sacrifice. Why would we do that, Paul? Why would we lay down our lives for someone? Because 
of His mercy. Because of the mercies of God. Chapters 1-11 through 11 of Romans. All the great things He's done. We were in bondage as sinners and God brought us out of bondage. We were enemies of God and God made us His friend, His Son. God is a great God and He is most worthy of all of our praise and our lives ought to reflect that because He has authority over all things and we ought to respond rightly to that. Let's pray. Lord, we need reminders like this that we can see You and Your Son more clearly. We often forget that Jesus has power over all sickness. And Lord, one of the things about having difficulty in our lives is that it causes us to groan, to, to look forward to, to, to anticipate with great eagerness a day in the future when You will remove all those things. And Lord, we know that You have not promised to do that in our lifetime, although You may. But You have promised to remove all of those physical, spiritual, mental infirmities that we have that are holding us down, that are weighing down our hearts. You've promised to remove them when we see You. When You clothe us with a glorified body, one where there will be no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no sickness, no dying. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. And we pray that now, even among our difficulties, that we would put our trust and our confidence in You, knowing both that You have the power to, to get rid of these problems, but also You have the power to give us strength to endure through them. We cannot stand on our own. We can only stand on the foundation that You have given us. And so we pray that we would put our full confidence in You. That we would give our hearts fully to You. And that our lives would be a reflection of our desire. That it would be a reflection of our hearts. That we want to serve You with all that we have no matter what You put on our plate no matter how difficult, no matter how long we are going to follow You, whatever the cost, because we believe You and we trust that You know what is best for us. You are a great God and we want to exalt You because of Your power and authority. And we're thankful that we were able to see that this morning. Help us to respond properly for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.